the citizens of some countries just are not flag wavers. A Swede doesn't wave the flag. While it's just the opposite for their cousins in Norway. I would be looked weird upon if I didn't have a flag. Coming up in the hour ahead, we'll look at the usually playful ways that Nordic neighbors in Sweden and Norway view one another. We'll also get an insider look at enjoying Australia's urbanized East Coast. It comes with a few rivalries as well. People from um, Sydney regard Melburnians as stodgy, as boring, whereas people from Melbourne see Sydney siders as frivolous. And travel writer Chris Elliott, with his family of five, stopped by to report on what they're getting out of their most epic road trip across Canada and the USA. And I think that a lot of travelers, they think, I want to see everything. And they end up not seeing anything as a result because they spend half the time in the car. From Scandinavian ribbing to down under fun, and an SUV packed for family adventure. Come along for the ride. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Homeschooling three kids on four wheels? That's just part of the adventure. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, consumer travel advocate Christopher Elliott brings the family along to check in in the middle of a two-month-long road trip they've been taking. We'll also hear how national siblings are getting along in Scandinavia and what the people in Sweden and Norway tend to think about each other. Let's start the hour with a look at what you'll find when you visit the cities of Australia. When he's not showing tour groups the antiquities of Europe, David Willett lives along the sunny coast between Brisbane and Sydney. David joins us now to help you plan a down-under getaway. Our number is 877-333-7425. David, good day. Pleasure to be here, Rick. David, because Australia is so far away from the other continents, it's easy for the rest of the world to not really have a clear image of what it's like. The stereotype might include kangaroos on every corner and Paul Hogan wrestling crocodiles in the outback. Do you find that a lot of visitors you meet in Australia come armed with a lot of misperceptions about what they'll find? Preconceptions are invariably wrong. Certainly it's the case in Australia where, as you started off for your introduction, the, the business about kangaroos hopping down the main street. I mean, nothing could be further divorced from reality than that image. Right. And uh, Crocodile Dundee, well, he came from the Northern Territory and he actually lives in America now and he's one of our favorite exports. So, <laughs> so there you go. Australia is quite urbanized then. Well, it's, it's very urbanized. In that, I mean, it's a huge landmass. It's only a fraction smaller than the, than the United States. And everyone, or the vast majority of people, live within 20 kilometers of the coast, say 15 miles of the coast. Mm-hmm. So you have a huge concentration of people in a very narrow band, mm-hmm. particularly stretching from, say, Melbourne in the south up to Brisbane. That holds probably 75% of Australia's population. Right there. Yes. Okay. Now, the two dominant cities would be Sydney and Melbourne, where, where do you go for the best uh, urban thrills? What would you recommend? How do they compare? Comparing them is very difficult, and the answer you get when you ask that question will depend entirely on where that person was from, whether they are Melbourneian, someone from Melbourne, or a Sydney cider, and the, an endless rivalry between the two. <laughs> people from um, Sydney regard Melbourneians as stodgy, as boring, whereas people from Melbourne see Sydney ciders as frivolous. <laughs> where are you and from? And fun-loving. I come from northern New South Wales. I'm a country boy. Oh, so you can get an unbiased uh, yeah, look at I, I, I have a Sydney wife. Sydney oh, you born, do? Sydney-born oh. wife. So my leanings now are with Sydney, but the only city that I've lived in in Australia was in, in Melbourne. Okay. Well, how would you characterize the two towns? Is there a different culture for the people? In the United States, you know, we've got the East Coast and the West Coast. I think there's a big difference between the two, and the difference is really driven by climate, hmm. in that Melbourne is a lot further south, and thus it has quite cold winters. Sydney's a lot warmer, and therefore the accident is more on outdoor activities. And as a coastal city, 
you have wonderful beaches. Bondi Beach is one of the world's iconic beaches. Now, is there a rivalry between the two cities? Naturally. So, so. A rivalry of everything, which is why the capital of Australia is halfway between the two of them, because they could not is decide right? where to, to put it. Like to avoid a civil war. They, did, they, had, to avoid, <laughs> they had to avoid it. <laughs> That's great. Now, you live in Melbourne, and I understand there's a lot of Greeks living in Melbourne. Maybe that's why you do tours through Greece. Is there some connection there? What's with all the Greeks in Melbourne? Well, the Greeks came to Melbourne after World War II and after the Greek Civil War, which virtually trashed all the Greek infrastructure. And at the time, Australia's mantra was populate or perish, and they wanted to populate with Europeans. And so the offer went out to Italians... Yugoslavs of various descriptions. Yes, populate or perish. That was the mantra. They were afraid that they would be swept away by the Asians from the north. So perish is sort of a almost a racist kind of thing. Populate with white people or we're going to be bowled over by this rising Asian horde. I think at the time that the policy was put in place, it was very overtly racist. Right. And there were were lots of terms that were used which are totally unacceptable today and I shan't use them on radio now either. So but, uh, the, the word went out, and the, maybe perhaps the more poor countries in white Europe heard the call, and a lot of Greeks went down there. Absolutely. And I mean, at, at the time, they were considered a little bit too swarthy. They really wanted white northern Europeans, say Germans, Brits, uh, rather than uh, the southern Europeans. But uh, How many Greeks would you estimate are in Melbourne now? The latest estimation of uh, the, the Greek population in Melbourne is somewhere just under half a million. So half it is it, it is second only to Athens. And how are the Greeks? Athens, then Melbourne, then Thessaloniki. Mm-hmm. Multicultural Australia is now the policy, and that began in 1980 when they, Australia opened its doors to the Vietnamese boat people. Oh, there we go. That was the formal death of the white Australia policy. So it's the sort of a getting modern with the whole globalization. Mm. I think Australia is now very proudly uh, multicultural and, and Things like the White Australia policy are seen as an embarrassment that uh, we'd rather not talk about. Sounds like something they would have done a long time ago in South Africa. Not dissimilar, and the attitude to the Australian Aborigines was not dissimilar either. My goodness. We have an email from Carolyn Boston. Carolyn writes, While working in Sydney a few years ago, I had the great pleasure of visiting with the Aboriginal people of Redfern. They were warm and friendly to me, and I'm an African-American, and they shared much with me about their hardships and historical turmoil with white Australians. How's the Aboriginal community doing now in Redfern? Is their economic outlook better now than it was a few years ago? Sadly, it is uh, still something of a blot, although it is nothing like as bad as it was when Carol was there 25 years ago. A lot of money has been poured into that area in an attempt to rejuvenate it. But it remains an underprivileged area. It remains an area with extremely high unemployment, certainly by Australian standards, relatively low education. The main way out of, uh, some would say, the ghetto is through sport. Hmm. And uh, that's the big thing in Redfern. A lot of emphasis on on rugby league. There's always issues there with uh, what is seen as insensitive policing, these kind of issues. It sounds very parallel to the United States. I think it is very, very similar. We've got big cities where there's what we call white flight, and it leaves a poor district, mostly uh, black Americans, and then you've got difficult issues with the police force and education challenges and on and on. And while we have our struggling black communities in big cities, you've got struggling Aboriginal communities in big cities. And um, all around Australia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Willett about urban Australia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Steve is calling in from Los Angeles. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, David. 
My question is, um, my wife and I are taking our first trip to Australia, and really looking forward to it. Uh, we're going to have five full days in Sydney starting off. And my question was, outside of the usual tourist attractions and tourist areas, which seem like there are quite a few, what would your suggestion be for kind of getting a feel for the local side of Sydney? Places uh, that locals go, areas that, you know, the tourists may not uh, necessarily think about or, or have the time to visit. I think the best way to connect with local culture is to do what locals do, which means really avoiding the main tourist attractions. I will always say to people, don't take one of those expensive harbour cruises with an appalling overpriced dinner included. Just use the ferries for public transport, as Sydneysiders do, and travel by local bus. It's not difficult. I took a group of uh, Americans through Sydney a few years ago, and it was one of the, the great surprises for me that their favourite uh, activity was riding the bus. Because as soon as they spoke, people recognised them as Americans and wanted to talk to them. In local speak English. We, we do. <laughs> well, I, think, I think we do, Rick. Arguably. There's, there's sometimes a dispute about that. <laughs> it is fun to, get a, to be in a land where you get the sensation yeah. of understanding a foreign language. Yes. So there's a good, that's a very good tip, Steve. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your call. Okay. Aussie homeboy David Willett's taking calls at 877-333-RICK with an overview of the urban pleasures of Australia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And Gail's calling in from Strongsville, Ohio. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you for taking the call. Um, we have a similar question to the gentleman that was just on the line, but we're uh, entertaining maybe a seven or nine night stay. And we thought that given the size of Australia, it'd probably be best to try and split our activities between um, maybe Melbourne and Sydney. We're a fairly active and fit senior couple, so we're not opposed to walking, but obviously some things would be out of uh, distance for, you know, just doing on foot. Wondering if we can get some recommendations about possible day trips. We'd like to avoid getting a car and any sites that we should not miss in addition to doing the local frequented areas. So side tripping out of Sydney and side tripping out of Melbourne, is that the idea, the question? Uh, Yes, but also doing some stuff locally to those areas. What are some tips, David? Well, there's lots of things within easy reach of, uh, of both Sydney and Melbourne, when I was living in Melbourne and I had foreign visitors, I used to take them up to a place called the Healesville Sanctuary, which is a place where you can see our famous platypus live, sponsored, I think, from memory by Dunlop Tires, which always made me laugh. <laughs> in Sydney, well, behind Sydney are the Blue Mountains, and certainly if it's hot in Sydney, it's a wonderful, cool escape. Without a car, one of the problems with Australia is it's a big country with not many people. So public transport outside the major cities is very limited. You know, I would think it makes sense to rent a car in Australia more than most countries. Yes, I think so too. And when I've done this in the past, what I've done is taken a train to somewhere in the Blue Mountains, for example, Katoomba, which is the main town there, and hire a car from there and then launch out. That way you don't have to deal with uh, the Sydney traffic and the fact that we drive on the wrong side of the road for you. What about the New England Highway? Well, the New England Highway, we're talking about rural Australia. There, there are two major highways that run north from Sydney, between Sydney and Brisbane. Mm-hmm. During World War II, funds were poured into the New England Highway, which runs up in the, in the ranges, inland, and that was seen as being safe from Japanese attack. So that's where the money went. These days, the money is all poured into the coastal highway, which is called the Pacific Highway. So maybe you'd see a little more of a time warp if you went inland? Absolutely. I mean, the attractions are, are, are very different. If you want to see real rural Australia riding on the sheep's back, you take the New England Highway. Mm-hmm. I would recommend actually doing both. Yeah. 
I would go up to Brisbane one way and come back down the other highway. Sounds great. There you go, Gail. There's some good tips for you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Willett. And David, one last question. If you want to connect with the music scene, you know, in the United States, we've got Austin and Nashville and Memphis. Is there a music capital in Australia where we'd hear a, a lively music scene? Both Sydney and Melbourne have lively popular music scenes. If you want to see country music, then one of the towns on the New England Highway is called Tamworth, and that is our country music capital where the street is lined with golden guitars. That's uh, our version of a uh, an Oscar or a Logie. Uh, so how would uh, country music differ in Australia from the United States? It doesn't. It's a, it's a U.S. genre, which is very oh, is. popular in Australia. I yeah. ah, gotcha. Okay, and that town is Tamworth. Tamworth. T-A-M-W-O-R-T-F, and it's on the New England Highway. Yes. All right. David Willett, thanks for a look at your homeland, Australia, and its urban wonders. My pleasure, Rick. How does a travel writer take his kids on the road any time of the year without undermining their schoolwork? Up next, we're joined by Christopher Elliott of the consumer travel advocacy site Elliott.org. He and his family join us in the middle of what they're calling their most epic road trip. We'll hear how the kids are enjoying their adventures across Canada and the U.S., and see how they do on their first visit to a radio studio. We're at 877-333-RICK. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Do you like to get out and explore the country on a road trip every now and then? Well, wait until you hear about this family's most epic family road trip. Consumer advocate Chris Elliott, his partner Kari, their daughter Eris, and their boys Aiden and Aaron have reached the turning around point in a two-month family road trip. They've spent the last month driving across most of Canada. And at the time we're recording this interview, they're with us in Edmonds, Washington, just over the county line from Seattle, before they head back home to Orlando. Chris, Kerry, kids, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, Rick. How's it going? Great. Now, um, Chris and Kari, mom and dad, tell us about the, uh, first of all, just the itinerary in general and uh, the groundwork. What kind of car you drive and, and, and what's the goal? Well, this is a uh, an open-ended trip that we've been on since 2010, actually. So it's been a good long time. And this particular segment, we started in Orlando, which is where we're based. And we drove all the way up to Montreal and then cut across Canada for about a month hmm. and then dropped back down into the States, Seattle. And then we're, we're kind of diagonally going back to Orlando over a period of about another month. Okay. So overall, the trip is how many how many weeks? It's about 57 days. 57, about 57 days. days. And what yeah. kind of vehicle do you have? Oh, we have a Honda Pilot. What does that describe? That it's an me? SUV. Oh, it's an, an SUV. SUV. Yeah. So you got, uh, describe the, the situation. There's five of you, and you're sitting off on a five-hour drive after breakfast. Uh, how, do you, how are you packing? Who's sitting where and so on? Well, the most important thing in your vehicle when you're traveling long distances is power. You want to make sure that everybody has power, that you have enough power to keep your yeah, hotspot working. Mm -hmm. All the kids have their own iPhone, iPad, computer, because they're doing homework sometimes. And so you, you have to make sure they're all plugged in. All right. So, Aaron, you're 13 years old, skipping out of school, but uh, probably learning a little bit along the way here. Tell us about power and how you keep yourself entertained and your brother and sister, too. To keep everyone entertained and not going after each other so for a little sanity in the back seat. Yes. What I do is I strategically place where I sit. So my brother sits next to me and then my sister would sit in the back or vice versa. So that way the kids don't have much contact with each other. 
and then I would do my schoolwork. So you're kind of the uh, the big shot among the kids because you're 13 and your brother's 10 and your sister's 8. Yes. And how, how tough is it to keep things charged? Do you have a charger in the car? Well, we have one of those USB chargers that right. replace those, uh, I think they're called cigarette lighters. Uh, used to power. have those cigarette lighters way back. Way, yeah. way, way back, yeah. Mm. So you plug that in and you got endless electricity. Endless electricity. But what about getting online? Is that a challenge as you're driving? We have this AT&T Wi-Fi mm-hmm. hotspot puck, mm-hmm. which we have a plan that's enough that would last us a month. Aiden, let's let you talk for a minute. What, what have you done? Have you done something you never thought you'd ever do and you remember for the rest of your life? You're um, just 10 years old. You got a lot ahead yes. of you. What are you going to tell your friends when you get home? We went on the fastest zip line in... Um, Oh, that was in Alberta. Yeah. In Alberta. Yeah, in you know, Calgary. I was thinking Zipline, because when I think remember this forever, I think Zipline. Yeah, and then uh, it was... That was, was the 90-meter ski jump off the, in the, at Olympic Park. We went down. Yeah. That, that's been converted. Is that right? So you go to the top where the jumpers start, yeah. mm-hmm. and instead you don't have skis, because it's in the summer and there's yeah, no snow. Yeah, you have to use a parachute to stop yourself. Did you do that okay? Yes. And all you kids did it? Mm-hmm. Wow. All of the other people who we were doing the tour with, they said, you guys go first. My sister went before all of them. Yeah? Yes. And, and what do you remember from taking the big zipline? The best part about the zipline was that when you come down, you like, crash and it's like really unexpected, but it's really fun. So the end of it is sort of the, the climax. That's the, yeah. that's the exciting and, ending. But when you're going down it, it's really loud. Yeah. Now you're just eight years old, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you guys, do you sleep well when you're staying in different hotels all the time? Or do you sleep in the car? No, you sleep in hotels, don't you? Kari, why don't you tell me, how do you figure out the accommodations? All right, it's pretty difficult to find accommodations to have everybody, all five of us, in one room. Uh, so a lot of times when we're traveling, we try and find vacation rentals so we can stay in a house. And that helps us out, too, with uh, food and uh, dining. Chris, your job is being a consumer advocate for travelers for National Geographic and various magazines. As you travel around, are you learning stuff that, like Kari was just talking about, finding a good place to stay? I, I would imagine you use Airbnb and some services like this. Yeah, we do. Places like, like HomeAway, VRBO, uh, good for vacation rentals. But yeah, for me, this is all field research. What's the big lesson you've picked up in the last week on the road with your family for your work as a consumer advocate of travelers? You know, I think that this trip has taught me to pace myself a little bit better. The last part of the trip through Canada was a bit of a sprint. Mm-hmm. We went through Alberta and then into BC, and we did it in three days. Mm-hmm. And that was a little ambitious. And I think that a lot of travelers make that mistake. They think, I want to see everything. Right. And they end up not seeing anything as a result because they spend half the time in the car, or even more than half and the time. And people are just a little bit uh, on top of each other, and it's just not as nice of an ambience for the family. That's true. Well, in the case of our family, we are always on top of each other. The drama is happening outside the car and inside the car. At the too. same time. Yes. Yeah. I, I just love the thought that we can inspire other families to take massive road trips like this. And in the name of uh, lifelong experiences and educations for the kids, from an educational point of view, experience point of view for the kids, how have you and Kari tried to make the most out of this trip? Well, the kids are in homeschool. They're in a virtual school. But your kids need to be motivated. So if you find yourself dragging them across the finish line at the end of every school year, maybe they need another year to do something like this. Mm -hmm. But I think our message is that anyone can do this. And you've got the kids having their own uh, sort of... uh, passions being able to play out on the road. I I know from your blog and your writings that uh, Aaron is the family photographer, 
So Aaron, tell us a little bit about photography on the road. Well, photography on the road is something else. There's something when you're just home and you're taking photography, but when you're on the road, you get to see everything. You get to see mountains, you get to see canyons. There's a lot of different terrain, and that's what I like about uh, traveling and photography. That's great. And are you aware of the light? Like, is it nice to be shooting in the morning and in the, in the early evening? Well, for very light, moody shots, I usually like the morning and evening, sunset okay. and sunrise. The light really does make a difference. Aiden, you're 10 years old and you're the family foodie, right? Yes. You like food. I, I read that you like the crab pizza in Maui and the mm-hmm. lobster pizza in Montreal. So these are just very exotic kinds of pizzas. Yes. Give us a little bit of tip for other 10-year-olds when they're going on a road trip. What's What kind of food can you look forward to? Well, if you're going through... Um Canada, and you are stopping in uh, Regina. Yeah, there is some very good. He's giving you restaurant recommendations oh, yeah. now. There, there's a place. Uh, I, there are so many yeah. places that that <laughs> have really good food. But my favorite is uh, Coney Island. They have really good poutines. And their milkshake menu is huge. So first of all, what's poutine? Poutine is French fries with gravy. And when you when you say the milkshake menu is really huge, what would you order if you had a huge selection? What's the very best one? Because I just go basic. I mix the, banana the, and chocolate. The, the best one would be the one that we got. It was really good. It It's like birthday cake and Oreos. Oh, All right. So health food on the road. <laughs> All right. Now, now Kari, uh, you're there with Eris, your little cute little eight-year-old daughter, and Eris is the collector. What do you like to collect when you're traveling? Well, I usually collect rocks or seashells. Seashells. So do you have a little box where you put them all in the car? Mm-hmm. I kind of like rocks with polka dots or lines. Yeah. And I don't really like them if they're just weird kind of shape. Okay, like so them. they need to be a, a kind of a nice shape. Yeah. Will you save them and remember the trip 10 years from now when you're older than your brothers? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. Taken a little rest from their most epic road trip across Canada and the United States, and just before they're supposed to show up at their vacation rental in Seattle, we're joined by travel writer Christopher Elliott, his partner Kari Hugetto, and their three children, from oldest to youngest, are Aaron, Aiden, and Eris. They blog about their experiences and what they learn from their frequent family road trips at awayishome.com. Chris is also the author of How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler, Chris, how many miles do you expect the trip to be when you're done? We're going to probably put close to 20,000 miles on the car for this particular segment. And then who knows what comes next. I think 20,000 miles? Tw- yeah, 20,000. Wow. We're going to get on a plane for, <laughs> for the next one. Well, you went off across some vast expanses. Now, you went across Canada. Why didn't you take the I-90 uh, and go across the north of the United States through Montana? Uh, we've already done that. Okay. So we're just trying something new. Is Canada and, like, because you got this vast plane and then you finally hit the Rockies. What was it, it like is, coming across, yeah. the, and then you finally see Banff and Jasper? I mean, that must have been just like, Gorgeous, wow. gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. What'd you do at Banff no, and nothing, Jasper? Nothing can compare. We, we had lunch. <laughs> you had lunch? <laughs> yes. Like I said, it was a sprint to the end. Oh, man, because yeah. when I was your kid's age, the most memorable thing I ever did was I took a horse ride in Banff and Jasper, and we saw fresh kill from other animals we, out there. You know, we were there about two years ago. For yeah. We did some skiing, yeah. and we had this very memorable dog sleigh ride, or dog sled ride, I should say, uh-huh. across the B.C. provincial border. It was beautiful. So we, we have done that. 
Yeah. But but we didn't, you know, this is the thing is that, you know, you just, there's never enough time. There's never enough time. There's so much to see. This is just sort of yep. a, an appetizer. Kari, you've um, got the kids out of public school and you're homeschooling them. What would you, as far as, a lot of people are homeschooling, uh, but I don't think a lot of people are homeschooling sort of endlessly on the road almost. <laughs> uh, give us some insights into actually making homeschooling on the road even more vivid and experiential than, than homeschooling at home. Well, um, homeschooling on the road allows you to take the main lessons from each of the classes and tie them to the place that you're at, uh, which helps the kids build memories about the area, but also will help the kids build those memories in math, science, and in social studies, and in English. The school that we go to is a virtual school, so they actually have their own teachers and they have classes that they attend, and they actually even have tutors and clubs. So it's very easy for me. All I have to do is make sure that they're keeping up with their schoolwork. Hmm. So each morning we wake up, we get up at about 5.30 in the morning, and for the first two to three hours we spend doing our schoolwork. At the end of that time, then we say, how did we do? Are we close to being finished? Can we take these lessons now and go out and explore? Nice. And in a sense, because it's you got this virtual kind of classroom, are the other classmates following along on the trip? Yes. And it works both ways. The kids have their friends, and we follow them. There's a couple of kids in the program that are Olympic hopefuls, so ah. it's very exciting. But these kids, do they live in all different locations, or are they all from the same town? They're all over. So, Erin, you've got friends from school that live all over the place, and you're just friends on online. Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit. Do you actually have friends that you've never really met in person? Yes, but I honestly, I don't have the most extensive social life in my school, so... <laughs> They're never home. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with the Elliott family about their adventures, a family of five on the road going 20,000 miles all around Canada and the United States and homeschooling along the way. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Barb's calling in from Chicago. Barb, thanks for your call. Hi. Regarding the education, I'm wondering how you keep the kids motivated and focused on their schoolwork on the road. That's a very good question. Motivation is the number one problem for homeschooling overall, and also especially when there's the distraction of travel. What you want to do is you want to try and tie in what they're learning to where they are. So if you can do math and you can do it outdoors, maybe at a park, and be able to do things that are a little bit what we call kinesthetics, things that you use your hands for, that you move things around for, that really gives you a good sense of keeping them motivated and wanting to learn more. Also, threats work pretty well. (laughs) 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 Motivation. Is there a sort of an incentive that you have? Like, uh, you know, when we travel with our kids, Euro Disney was at the end of the trip, and, you know, you needed to do your journal, and you needed to get along in order to go to Disneyland. Or is there a desserts or anything like that that you use as an incentive? We do. We have uh, the end-of-the-day dessert, and we get to find out who gets to have dessert and then who gets to choose it. Oh, now that's great. So the, the child that was the best member of the team gets to choose the dessert. Yes. Oh. We've got an email here from Scott in Reno, Nevada. And Scott writes, I'm the father of a six-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. At what age do you think kids are ready for this type of extended road trip and why? Kari, would you hazard some advice on that? Yep. You can get started right away. Pack your bags and let's go. The younger the children, the more adaptable they are. And they'll, they'll look to you and they'll follow your lead. As they get older, they have more personality. And if they started traveling earlier... 
then they'll feel more confident as they get older. So there's confidence, and we traveled with our kids every year also, and there's um, an openness to people who are different. Yes, absolutely. And um, more understanding that the world is very diverse, not just a little diverse, but very diverse. And different food, right, (sighs) Hayden? Yes. Different food, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Chris, any thoughts on that? You know, let me just say that three is a little young if you're not toilet trained. And I know, (laughs) don't want to bring it down to that level here, but that's a real key thing is uh, when when you have to haul all the diaper bags around, that does add another layer of complexity to it. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really get started until 2010 when all the kids were were pretty safe out of diapers. Well, I can tell right now with, with your little daughter, Eris, eight years old, sitting here, she's absorbing everything like a sponge. And that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> right, Eris? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gotcha. There you go. All right. We're going to wrap this up by just imagining each of us here when we're old and gray, thinking back on this trip, what would be the most, the funnest memory that you had from the time together? Do you kids all get that? And we're going to start from the youngest and go up. So, Eris... A long, long time from now, if you try to remember this trip, what are you going to remember? I'm probably going to remember the zip line. The zip line. Okay, the zip line has been taken. Nobody can say that one again. I think that was a big hit. Aiden, what about you? What will you remember 50 um, years from now about this trip with your family? I'm probably going to remember all of the um, food. I would also remember these huge mics. Oh, on this so this studio, trip, yeah. this yes. studio right here is part of your it's a highlight yeah. trip yes. experience. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay, and older brother Aaron, what will you remember? I'm probably gonna remember Banff the most. It was so beautiful there. I mean, it looked so mythical, and it it was a scene. It was just a scene. You could take photo and know that any photo you took would be absolutely beautiful. You know, I, I really have a personal moment right here because I was your age when my mom and dad took me to Banff and I have the same experience. Banff is just incredible. Kari, how about you? Well, I am not going to forget being in the car. <laughs> <laughs> I will remember all of the times working in the car. Chris, how about you? hundred years from now, what will you remember? Well, not 100, 100 years. 100 years. 30, <laughs> I'll go with 30 or 40 years. I like how you waited until the, the end for me. And it, I, I guess I am the oldest. I don't know. You know, I love being with the family. So that's going to be my short answer is that I just love being with everyone and maybe observing some of the personal growth in the children. For me personally, though, it was a real personal journey. I, I lost a lot of things on this trip. We almost lost our $15,000 worth of camera equipment in the hotel. I lost a very good friend. Uh, that happened early on. He unexpectedly passed away. And my server crashed as well. And these are, these are things that you can't anticipate when you're traveling. You don't know what's going to happen back home when you leave. So I'm right now I'm just wiped out and I'm ready to go home and we still have a whole month left. So I think that, you know, sometimes travel is not perfect. And, and this was one of those times when, you know, you just... You roll with the punches and you say, I'm going to get back up, dust myself off and go do it all over again. And and I'm just grateful for the opportunity, you know. Yeah, you're living together on the road. Absolutely. I mean, every the good things and disappointments and frustrations happen at home and they happen on the road. But uh, boy, talk about accelerated living. The Elliott family, thank you so much for sharing with us uh, your adventure. And I'm glad that Aiden thinks these big microphones are going to be one of the highlights of the trip. <laughs> Happy travels. That's what we say. Thanks. Thank you. Zippity-doo-dah, 
We'll try our best to keep it all in the family next as we look at the ways Scandinavian neighbors view one another. Our guests from Norway and Sweden let us in on their mostly friendly rivalries next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Katarina from Prague, Czech Republic, and I have one tongue breaker for you. It's great to practice the most difficult letter in this alphabet, what we have, and that's the R. So we go like... 333 stříbrných stříkaček stříkalo přes 333 stříbrných střech. What basically means that 333 silver houses were watering 333 silver roofs. And if we can again practice that, 333 stříbrných stříkaček stříkalo přes 333 stříbrných střech. A Swede and a Norwegian walk into a bar. How the joke ends depends on where you live. Let's take a look now on Travel with Rick Steves at how people in the Scandinavian countries deal with their differences, or what they think are their differences. We've invited two resident guides from Sweden and Norway to let us in on some of the perceptions and maybe a few misperceptions they share about their Nordic neighbors. Pulling up a stool to join us are Paul Johansson from Oslo in Norway and Håkan Franden from Sweden. Stockholm is his city. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Tack. Tack, tack. Skål. Skål. Yeah, if we go into a bar. Yeah. Skål. Oh, that's skål. right. We're going into a bar. Sweden yeah. Norwegian goes into a bar. Now, if I was from Denmark and I was going to make a sweeping generalization about Norwegians and about Swedes... What, what would a Dane say about well, Norwegians and Swedes? We wouldn't understand because we can't understand <laughs> Danish. We can, actually. He would say, the Dane would say about the Swede that the Swede is pretty stupid and most of the time he's drunk. I remember when I, was, I, I went to Copenhagen, on the ferry terminal, it was written on the wall, make a good deed today, take a Swede to the ferry. If you want to do something good in Denmark, <laughs> you take a Swede, put <laughs> yeah. him on the ferry put and send him home to Sweden. Home. Yeah. But... This was back in the days when it was very difficult to buy alcohol in Sweden. Ah. And in Denmark, they had sold alcohol in, like, in you know, regular oh. stores. So mm. Swedes went there, young kids went there, got drunk and mm. well, sent them yeah. In our American uh, Western movies, they always show a, a guy, a cowboy in the bar. He gets so drunk and the other people literally throw him out the door. That's right. Now, that's, now that's in, Sweden, what is, right? there's Helsingor and Helsingborg. Yeah. Which one is in Denmark? Helsingborg is in Sweden is and Helsingør is... So they're just, you can yeah. see them. They're like a 20-minute yeah. boat ride across. Correct. And the Swedes come over to the Danish port mm. to get their cheap liquor. And I was there, and I'll never forget it. The Danes picked up this drunk Swede and literally threw him out the door. <laughs> it's like, put a Swede on a ferry back to Sweden. When was that? That could have been me. <laughs> no, that was not that ago. Paul, what would the Dane say when he thinks about the Norwegians and the Swedes? Well, um, I actually asked a Danish friend once, uh, you know, what, what do you think of us Norwegians? And, and he was like, you know, to be honest, we don't think about you guys too much. Uh, you're kind of like a, a distant cousin up, up in the north there. Uh, but they find us very cheerful in a way. It has to do with how we, how we speak, that we sound very cheerful. The and Norwegian dialect is this sing-song. Yeah. Can you give me an example of, maybe an ex- extreme example of that as a Norwegian? Um, det høres litt ut som at uh, vi synger. <laughs> it sounds like we're <laughs> singing. Le, le, and then you, in you, Swedish, what would you say then? No, you, if you give me whatever sentence in English, I shall say it in Swedish and in Norwegian, but with English words. Okay. Today the weather is beautiful. 
and tonight we will have a good time together. I will say it in Swedish and Norwegian. You said, today the weather is beautiful and we will have a good time together. Norwegian, it will be like this. Idag är det gott väder och vi vill ha en god dag idag. Swedish, it will be like this. Det är fint väder idag och vi ska ha roligt idag. So we go down, they go up. You know, do the Norwegian again because I thought I was sitting with my uncle from Norway right now. Det är gott väder idag och vi ska ha det gött idag då. I remember when when we were with my Norwegian relatives and my cousin was really being a bad child and his father was angry with him, he sounded that friendly when he was scolding him. That's right. That's, that's, that's where the myth that the Norwegians are so nice comes from that. Because they of the, sound, they nice. sound so happy. Yeah. That's e- right. Even if you're not. Yeah, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saw I, this, uh, there was this uh, humor program on the television made in Denmark where yeah. a, Norwegian go, a depressed Norwegian goes to the psychologist and uh, he comes in and sits in the chair and the psychologist says, what can I, what can I help you with today? Oh, you know, I'm I'm just so terribly depressed and uh, yeah, I feel so bad. Please, <laughs> what can you do to make yeah, me happier? Yeah, what can make me happy again? I lost my wife. And <laughs> okay, now just to to continue the comparison between Norway and Sweden um, politically, just very quickly, how would you compare Norway and Sweden, Paul? Well, uh, are the trends the same? I mean, is every, is it very socialistic in both cases? A both, lot of taxes. They're both socialistic, um, high tax uh, welfare system. We both have had uh, tendencies of moving right on the political scene the last years. More in Norway, I would say, than in Sweden, in a way that we have a right-wing party in our government. Sweden yeah, do not. We, we have a left-wing government since a year back, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You're talking about there are right-wing extremist movements all over Europe becoming stronger, but they still are, they have 13% in Sweden, so... I would not say that we have gone towards... So Norway right. has more of a right-wing extremist movement than in Sweden? Well, they do. well they're not... Ex- not I wouldn't say extremists, no. but they are, they are right-wing. Uh, and they talk twi- very happy. 20 years ago... Hello, I <laughs> yeah. think we're gonna <laughs> 20 years ago or 15 years ago, they would have been... They were considered more extremists, right. but um, what is normal is, is kind of changing from year to year. So the trend is to the right in Norway. Um, that's how it's been. Is yeah, that the because last of years. just the realities of globalization, uh, economy, and so on, or immigrants? This is just concerns? actually a general trend in Norway. The last yeah. uh, thirty years, it goes um, four or eight years to the left, and then it turns and it goes four or eight years to the right. And Hakan in Sweden, what in is Sweden? Everybody is a social democrat. There are conservative social democrats, liberal social democrats, green social democrats. Everybody is a social yeah. democrat. You know, yeah. but somewhere between left and right. I say sometimes that if you take the right-wing party of Norway, put it into the American political system, they will be far, far left. Yeah, I think that's pretty safe to say. That's right. That's the way it is. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hakan Franden and Paul Johansson from Norway and from Sweden about a Sweden and Norwegian walk into a bar. What happens? What if you're talking sports? What are the big sports passions in Norway and in Sweden? Shall we be stereotypes here now, do you think, Paul? I think so. <laughs> Shall you be the Norwegian, I'll be the Swede, yeah. which we are. Okay, do that. So then I, I have to be the good guy and you have to be the bad guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, the thing is that when it comes to sports nowadays, uh, Norwegians are much better in ski, cross-country skiing. Okay. Yeah, but there's always been a lot of lo- rivalry there between... Uh, cross-country skiing cross-country is a big skiing. deal in Scandinavia. It's a big deal. Maybe Håkan wouldn't, didn't want to talk about uh, cross-country yeah, well, skiing. I, I, I know yeah. everything about sports. I can talk about sports. But the truth is, Norway is the most successful country in Winter Olympics of all countries. 
per of capita, all certainly. Time. Mm. Per capita, certainly, but they have more gold medals than right. than America and Russia. Yeah. Oh, in yeah, Olympic yeah. Games, we, we do. Right? We do. They focus very much on the Olympic. What about Sweden? Uh, Sweden is not that good in sports. You're we, good in hockey. Yeah, we're good in hockey. We're good in football, but we're not. You know, Swedes. If we should have spoken about Norse gods now, he would probably have chosen Thor, who is the strong guy who wins all the time. <laughs> I would have chosen Heimdall or somebody else who's more, you know, social type of guy. Yeah. Swedish athletes go to the Olympics to participate. If there's an interview after an event and the Swede ended up on the fourth place, he, he or she would say, oh, I'm, it was so fun to be here. <laughs> a Norwegian ends up second, it would be... It would be, be a scandal. It would be a scandal. It's so important for the Norwegians to win. It's yeah. not at all as important for but us. But it to is win. interesting because there's twice as many people in Sweden, and Sweden has a far bigger economy, doesn't it? Yeah, but but Norwegians, we have this kind of uh, minority complex, yes. I guess you can call it, That's that it. we are we're a small country. And we, we just want to be recognized, you know, in, yeah. the, in the rest of the world. Well, because you've had to struggle for your independence from <laughs> Sweden and from Denmark. Yes, exactly. Now, today, does that show itself in a different kind of patriotism? What country would wave its flag more? They, they would. Norway, Norway would. Definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. 1994, <laughs> Lillehammer Olympics. There were right. like two million Norwegian flags all over the place. <laughs> You got so fed up with the Norwegian flag. Yeah. At the end of the Olympic Games, the whole world was fed up with the Norwegian oh. flag. <laughs> but, you know, I know May 17, right? It's the 10 to May, whatever. That's the Norwegian mm. 4th of July. Sitten May. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a big deal. I mean, you go to Carl Johan, go to the main street in Oslo. Mm -hmm. It's a huge festival. I've never even thought of the Swedish national holiday. What day is that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I do not. Look, it's like this. We didn't have a national day. But we always thought the Norwegians seemed to have, and the Americans to, for that matter, to have so much fun on their national day. So we decided like 20 years ago to let's have a national day. And we picked 6th of June. <laughs> so 6th of June is our national day. And uh, that's just another day. And then you see some Swedes going to Skansen, the open air museum yeah, in Stockholm, yeah. with a little flag <laughs> like this, little embarrassingly waving the flag. A Swede doesn't wave the flag. This will sound strange to the two of you. I could not walk around with a Swedish flag on my... On your lapel, like on, an American Like an American would, you know. or like a, a Norwegian. Right. Because our flag has become also... They were back in this uh, right-wing extremism again. Racists, nationalists have taken control of the Swedish flag. So if I would walk around with a Swedish flag, I would be seen as a racist. So they would assume, I wouldn't do that. They would assume you would be part of an anti-immigration party in, in Stockholm. And so I oh. wouldn't do that. While as you guys, you wave your flags proudly and happily, which is good, mm. but, you know. Yeah. I, I would be looked weird upon if I didn't have a flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. In Norway, you wear <laughs> your traditional... Nor Norway what, is yeah. very much more nationalistic. Now, what about... This is another interesting issue, is in World War II, the Norwegians resisted the Nazis and they lived under Nazi occupation, while the Swedes stayed neutral and uh, consequently suffered less in World War II. What are the lingering feelings about that? I don't think you have any hard feelings Not about now. that. After the my, war, was there? My, my grandfather, who lived through the Second World right. War, he, he would sometime make some, some reference that the Swedes didn't help out enough uh, right. to the Norwegians during the war. But so it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Uh, with my generation, there's no talk about this at uh, all. The way, we, no. the way we see it, we, it's more like, 
thousands, tens of thousands of Jews from Denmark and Norway yeah. escaped to Sweden and found shelter there. Mm. To outsiders, it might be hard to distinguish one Scandinavian country from the next. But as we're learning today on Travel with Rick Steves, there are a lot of friendly rivalries and stereotypes that can help to liven things up at the dockside watering hole. Especially when you're joined by the likes of Paul Johansson from Oslo and Håkan Franden from Stockholm. I know that Norwegians and Swedes love their akvavit. How do Norwegians and Swedes handle their alcohol? So the Swedes, they don't really make good aquavit. The Norwegian aquavit is, is the best aquavit <laughs> in Scandinavia. This, this is ridiculous. <laughs> no, we make very good aquavit. Very good. <laughs> and what does aquavit mean, literally? Lyle, water, water of, of life. life. The water of life. Water of life. Aquavita. And O.P. Anderson is the Rolls Royce of aquavit. And that's Swedish? Yes. No, the Linea Aquavit, <laughs> that's the Rolls Royce of Aquavit. <laughs> and and what, what is the importance, what is the place of Aquavit in social world of, of Norway and Sweden? During Christmas, it's very important to have Aquavit with a Christmas meal. Uh, <laughs> and also during National Day, have an Aquavit or some, some special occasion. It's nice to, uh-huh. to find the bottle. And same Huck. thing, midsummer. Yeah. Midsummer, Christmas. Hakan, let's say you have a, a daughter and she brought home a boyfriend who is Norwegian and she said... I'm going to marry this man. What would you tell her? Honest answer? Yeah. I have four daughters. I've told them, don't get married, please. Oh, don't get married. Yeah. Just live together. Yes, live together. <laughs> that's the, that's <laughs> the sweetest of that. The sweetest that you know, if you want the honest answer, yeah. my answer would be, a Norwegian boyfriend, oh, how nice. Probably. I mean, I would want to talk to the guy, and <laughs> if it was nice, I would say, don't marry him. Live together. If it was not nice, I would say, don't, Don't marry, marry him. him. <laughs> Live together. <laughs> because it's not my choice. <laughs> and Paul, if, if uh, you had a daughter and, and she brought home a Swedish boyfriend, what warning would you give her? Just jokingly, anyways. I would like to meet him just to see if he has any sense of humor because the Swiss normally don't have a lot of sense of humor. You, you don't have any daughters, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I can hear that. Like I told you, I have four. You, you've got no part of that. So just forget that. Okay, we are. We could, I could talk all day. This is so much fun. But I just want to close this uh, delightful conversation with, speaking of sense of humor, a joke. How would a Norwegian joke about a Swede? And then, Hakan, you get your chance to give us a joke about a Norwegian. Well, there, there was this incident a couple of years ago in, in Stockholm where they thought there was a, a Russian submarine in the archipelago of Stockholm. And uh, the Swedes, they found, uh, you know, they had one boat which could search for submarines. They, of course, they didn't find anything, but there was this joke that, that how, do you, how do you sink a Swedish uh, submarine? I don't know. You know? You swim down and you knock on the door. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that, that submarine... Okay, that, Hakan, yeah, touche. That submarine was a fact, as a matter of fact. It was a whiskey-type submarine. Yeah, that's a, the brand a Russian submarine. Got stuck on a rock in the Stockholm archipelago. And it was, of course, called the Whiskey on the Rocks. <laughs> it, because that's what it was. Right. Whiskey on the Rocks is whiskey with ice, right? You can't get that in Norway. Do you know why? Why? Because they don't have any eyes. Do you know why? No, why? Because the woman who knew the recipe has died. <laughs> <laughs> That's a typical type of a... When I grew up, when I was 13 years old, I met my first Norwegian. I actually, honestly believed that it was a stupid person I was going to meet. <laughs> because we grow up with these kinds of jokes. Yes, All we the do. time. Yeah. Why, do you know why the National Library has been closed in Oslo? Why? Because somebody stole the book. <laughs> that you, type of. Do you know why a Swede brings uh, sandpaper to the desert? 
No. They need a map. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and all those jokes, we tell about each other, and we grow up thinking the others are stupid. Then we meet them, and we get to know them, mm. and they are lovely people. Do you know lovely what the Norwegian people. nickname for Swede is? What? Uh, we call them for Söta Bror. It means uh, sweet brother mm. or sister. Well, that's delightful. Yes. Mm-hmm. That makes me happy. <laughs> yes, good <laughs> <Me> too. <laughs> Very good. Hey, Hakan Franden from Stockholm and Paul Johansson from Oslo. Tusen Tak for uh, giving us a little insight into your beautiful cultures. Thanks so much. Thanks When I go out to eat back home, I tend to think of going out for Mexican or Thai. In other countries, going out for ethnic food can be quite different. On my recent trip to St. Petersburg, I met up with my friend, Steve Caron, who opened the first youth hostel in Russia. When I asked Steve what cuisine we should get for my first dinner in Russia, his enthusiastic response, Georgian. Listen in on a food tour Steve gave me without ever leaving my dinner table. And it's all new to me. It's Georgian. 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 <laughs> so Georgian is like a Mexican and American. Steve, tell us very quickly about the Georgian food. First of all, what do we have here? Okay, now this is hachapuri, which yep. is uh, a cheese bread. There are, there are a dozen different types of hachapuri. And this? This is fried sulguni cheese, which is a salted cheese with tomato. It's wonderful. Right. And this? This is egg. It's called baklajani, but it's eggplant. It's filled with walnuts and garlic nice. and cream. And over here? And that's satsivi, which is chicken and a walnut sauce. It's really good. The, yeah, and here we have a nice... This is lobio, which are beans with walnuts and... Now, you said in the old days wine was either red or white or... Yeah, back in the old days that's all they had. What do you got in your hand there? I have red wine, but it's a a house wine, a house Georgian wine. A house Georgian. And we're really excited in in Russia now because they just started to allow Georgian wine back into Russia. And I love Georgian Georgian. Now, I got a big... That is a color of green that doesn't occur in nature very often. This is a tarragon soft drink. So it's made with tarragon. It's green. And uh, it's very popular. Uh, it's from Georgia. Tarragon, something. Yeah, okay. It's called Tarkun. Wow. I'm Rick Steves, and when you travel in Russia, it's tough because you got to get a visa. And I'm sorry about that. But if you go through the hoops and get a visa, but it's and if you it. can connect with some good friends, hello. 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 <laughs> it's a lot of fun. This is our first day in St. Petersburg, and um, having a nice time. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can send us an original haiku about your own travels, or find out when Rick's recording his next batch of radio interviews so that you can talk on the air with Rick and his guests. Find out how it all works in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Nordic adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.